What is even going on this week? This week has been up and down for me. Uh, some positives, some negatives. But what I'm going to talk about today, there's there's a couple of... There's not as many points that I've grabbed this week because I've been so headfirst into the sleep research, which I will probably speak about in a minute. But there are a couple of points this week that are so related that they could have literally come from the same source. But they didn't. They actually came from sources so far apart that I, I, I just didn't realise, oh, wait, those links there's there's links in everything um yeah the, the sleep research this is something i want to riff on a little bit before we get into the points that i found this week is that researching something it's very easy it's very fun and you can go down rabbit holes and that's what i did with sleep and i've been looking into sleep for probably almost a month now and i have so much research that i've struggled to make a video on it i've actually shared i actually shared that in the uh, newsletter last week because it was on my mind and with all of the research into sleep, what I found is that there are so many areas, so many questions, so many unanswered questions that I had, so many things that I didn't realise were actual things uh, that I don't really know where to start when I go to explain this stuff. Because when you look at factors that affect sleep quality, you then have all of those factors. But then you have what's called, I don't know how to pronounce it, Zeitgebers, Zeitgebers, uh, which are essentially other factors that affect sleep quality, but there's certain factors uh, that are specific to one type, and each of those factors therefore have sensory input. So some things uh, are eye-related, something are sound-related, there are different elements to eyes and, and sight, so light and what you see and objects, and then when it comes to hearing, what sort of sounds and how you detect the sounds, how your brain then interprets that information and all these sorts of things affect sleep and then you have the habits and the behaviors and the actions and everything that goes on and I was just adding and adding and adding and then I realized something you know when you're researching something you're always adding you're always learning it's very rare that you actually take something out of research that you've learned so making that video would then get stuck in time and this actually relates to the first point that I'm going to bring up this this week, uh, which is executable books. Books with contextual information that allows exploration. Now, this comes from, I can never say his last name right, Andy Mutishek uh, and Michael Nielsen. They did a, a blog, and it was called How Can We Develop Transformative Tools for Thought? And they spoke about executable books, essentially not textbooks, they're not just this is how you do A, B, C, D, but executable books in that the online tools, in that the book is evolving over time. The The book has uh, questions, flashcards in them for when you read through the book, there are flashcards that either appear or don't, depending on whether you remember them or not, uh, giving that space repetition uh, experience. But then something that I wanted to expand on with this idea of executable books is because they're online and their digital tools. You can then associate a digital book, an executable digital book, with a digital garden. Now, traditionally, a digital garden is a collection of notes that are public, basically, and some of those notes, from my experience looking around other people's digital gardens, they come in three sort of forms. You have one form which is very, very structured, and it is very much a, you do this, you read this, you read this, and you work through it. And it's very much an executable book. And it's really useful, but they're very limited because each of those notes is just so structured that it's kind of its own blog post. Then you have the blog post digital gardens, which are literally blog posts. Now, I wouldn't class this personally as, as a digital garden because it's just a load of blog posts that are somewhat interrelated with hyperlinks. And... For me, that is just uh, a personal blog. 
That's, that's what a personal blog is with links in there. So I wouldn't class it as a digital garden in my view because there isn't a, a, a sense of, okay, this is a processing note. This is an idea I'm working on or I'm trying to flesh out. And this is a working note. This is something that I've I've condensed and I've got synthesis. I've got critique. And this is my formulated opinion around this topic right now. Or this is a capture note that I've taken. This is the source that I've taken. These are the notes that I've grabbed it. And it's just a messy note. That's what I see a digital garden as. It's someone that can go into that digital garden. They can go into the garden. They can see those those vegetables, those fruits that are there. They're, they're good to see. They're working. They are. They are finished almost uh, because it's always growing. It's always moving forwards. But you can also see those those roots that are just coming through. Uh, but then you also know where those 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 roots and things have come from. Uh, you you know. Okay, underneath the earth, there is all of those seeds, and those seeds are the capture notes. And the capture notes are messy. They're not there to be structured. They're not there to look nice. They're just messy capture notes. And I don't see many capture notes in those blog style digital gardens you don't see those how where did they get that from where where's the notes that they took from that article from that blog from that video you don't you don't see those uh, so you can't really go all the way down to the seats now not everyone wants to go that far but that's not always there and then i think there's this there's this third level where you have all of those things but it is so sporadic that unless you know what is where you have no idea what you're looking at. You just see you see seeds, but you don't really know where the seeds lead to. Then you see plants, you don't really know whether where the plants, where the fruit, where the veggies is. It's just it's it's a garden, but it's an absolute mess, and it's sort of like upside down. Because you see seeds in the same place you expect to see the vegetables, rather than it being underground. Uh, which is why I think combining this idea of an executable book and a digital garden makes more sense in my mind because you can have an executable book, which is essentially a written summary, a written book of what is going on. You have a go-to blog post, kind of like a start here page, but a start here page that has all of the ideas, all of the topics, all of the digital gardens summarized in very brief points and notes that can be easily read, i.e. explained in plain language. So you've got that executable book as a start-off point. That is looking at the garden. Then when you go into that book, you go into the garden, you see the working notes, you see the fruit and the veg. Then when you go into that fruit and veg, i.e. you go into the working notes, you then start to see some of the processing notes because you can see in that area, oh, we've got some of these, some of these vegetables, I don't know, some of these carrots are ready to be picked, i.e. They're, they're thought out, they're synthesized, they're critiqued. But then some of these carrots haven't quite grown enough or there needs to be some more work. There needs to be more growth, i.e. the processing notes. But then when you start digging around and actually having a look, oh, look, there are some seeds that have been planted there, i.e. there's some capture notes there or this links to that or this is next to this. And you can start diving deeper as you go. But you start from that executable book that has contextual information around the idea, around the topic that allows for further exploration if need be. And because of the way most applications, most tools of thought now work, you can just ask yourself a question about whatever that context is. So when you see note taking is complicated as a link, you can say, okay, what's going to be included in that note? Because it's a working note, there may be lots of things. Going back to that uh, the example of sleep earlier, oh, there are lots of factors that affect sleep quality. I wonder what they are. And then you can ask yourself those questions before you go in. So you have flashcards. No, there isn't an algorithmic uh, space repetition attached to it. But every time you go and have a look at the executable book, i.e. every time you go and read it, because it's going to be updated, every time you read it, you can ask yourself those questions. And this is the difference, I think, between textbooks and written books and executable books. 
and I'm going to also add in their videos as sort of textbooks as well because this is one of the things I was struggling with. I'm constantly researching sleep and adding stuff and my digital garden is constantly growing around sleep. But if I did a video, that growth disappears, which is why I think the videos, I want the videos to become what I've learned at this point and then for the link to my digital garden, to my executable book to be easily accessible. So, so when people do watch that uh, video, six months, 12 months, 18 months later, they can get then go to the executable book, find the chapter I have written about sleep, which would probably just be a heading in the page, and then they can go down that rabbit hole, go down into the digital garden of all those notes. They will probably find things that they've seen in the video that was 6, 12, 18 months ago. But they will also find things that are new, also find the resources that I've used. So if they do want to go in, they can. Very similar to Wikipedia. It would be very similar to Wikipedia. But when you go into Wikipedia, you go into each page. And then each page is like its, its own executable book with links going all over the place. And it's very easy to get lost in Wikipedia. Uh, but that's what it would be like. It's it's your own Wikipedia, but the executable book allows there to be some starting point. And I think for me, the difference between uh, a, the, the idea of a Wikipedia and a personal Wikipedia is Wikipedia has lots of people editing it and it is an amazing resource, but there is lots of information in there that isn't necessarily needed. And when you look at one of those pages, one of those pages could be extremely fleshed out and it can be an article in itself. And when it comes to note taking for me, I don't want to have to read through all of that information to find what I need. Yes, it's split up into sections. Yes, there are points going all over the place, but a lot of the time in Wikipedia, I end up right reading and having to find sections and navigate through, and it's just a bit of a mess. Uh, and I would imagine digital gardens are going to be the same. Uh, but from a from an outsider looking in, you know what you're looking for um, with with the digital garden because you've had those videos. But I think the the biggest benefit of having an executable book and a digital garden is for the person actually making it. Yes, it is nice for other people to see it, but it's for the person making it. They can really condense down their ideas and what it is that they're looking at. Now, linking this idea of executable books with learning, Andy actually wrote a blog post about why books don't work. And he was saying that courses need active learning, not just textbooks and information. And he was relating this to textbooks, but also to other books, so fictional, non-fictional books, that they are they are stuck in time and they're very instructional. And most people don't learn by, I read this thing, I now know this thing. That was his point, basically. And he was saying, just because you've read it doesn't mean you understand it. You need to understand the context. You need to understand the surrounding information and actually experience conversations, arguments, discussions, critique, synthesis, and actual practical application of whatever the idea thought is in the real world, which is where courses also struggle because a lot of courses just have that, that I'm going to consume this thing and now I can repeat this thing uh, type of learning, which isn't how most of us learn. So those courses that have conversation between people taking the course is where the benefit comes. That is where the benefit happens. But in formal education, in higher education, a lot of those conversations don't happen. It's just, I'm going to read this book or listen to this lecture or consume this video or whatever, and then regurgitate the information for the essay when I need it. That isn't very useful learning. And this is something I'm going to test myself with probably next week uh, and actually go, okay, what did I actually learn in my degree? And write down all the things that I can remember. Because I guarantee a lot of the stuff I remember will be stuff that I did my own research on. But I 
don't know because um, I haven't done that bit yet. But when it comes to learning, we need to have those conversations. We need to have those arguments with people, not just read textbooks or watch videos or listen to podcasts and go, yep, I now know that thing. Because a lot of the time you're you're just going to think that you know it because that's what you currently agree with. And this is where the idea, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I, I spoke about Veritasium and the idea of explaining myths and misconceptions uh, in, in a topic or in an area because it gets you to think, get you, gets you to critically think about what's being said rather than just going, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, I already know that. When you didn't know that, you just agree with what they've said potentially confirmation bias or you just being mentally lazy and just accepting what they've said which happens in politics and i'm going to leave it on that one there uh, <laughs> so uh, the next point is stats can be detached unlike stories and this actually comes from uh, the art of coaching podcast which is where they they speak about communication a lot art of coaching has a lot to do with communication because if you can't communicate with someone you can't really coach them and Kendra Hall was talking about well talking about lots of different uh, lots of different ways of communicating a story she's essentially a professional storyteller and she was giving lots of different stories explaining how she tells stories uh, but something that she said that really struck home with me was stats can be detached and the reason it struck home with me is a lot of people use facts, use figures, and say, well, science says this, and I read a study that said that. And lots of people detach themselves from those stats, from those uh, facts, from the research. And this is where stories start to link in. And it really hit home with me because when I was, when I was coaching, you say, oh, uh, this person, this researcher did all of this research, and they found this uh, conclusion most of the athletes that i worked with went oh, okay but they didn't really care like a couple of weeks afterwards when i asked them about it oh yeah i wasn't really listening whereas if you tell them a story about something just like one person it could be an arbitrary story it doesn't even have to be real it could just be a made-up story but if that story then cites the research they then remember the story and therefore, they remember the research and what the research came up with. So maybe making up stories, I know it's kind of lying, but making up stories or creating a narrative around research, around facts, allows for attachment to that information. So when you're communicating with people and you're trying to communicate this complex topic or this boring subject, attaching a story, attaching a narrative, creating something that's relatable for that person that's consuming the information, allows them, I think easier easier paths to remember the information to use the information and actually understand it because you brought context in through the story so creating a uh, a useful story a, a creative narrative around a topic an idea can help not only you tell that story effectively because instead of going oh yeah so and so did a research study like this this that and the other you could say you could tell a story about i don't know one of the subjects maybe uh, and this is actually something i've seen recently in, on a youtube channel there was a there's a medical professional and they tell case study stories to explain different concept topics and it's very very effective you look at it and you you feel attached to the story of this person that they are saying and i'm not a medical professional but it's certainly an effective way to grab people's attention because when you hear that a a student died from eating old pasta it certainly gets you intrigued and then you start learning about the immune system and how different infections can affect so many different parts of the the organs in your body but that story that's that case study that's been attached to all of this theory 
brings it in, brings it home, and makes the stats and uh, and the uh, the boring stuff relatable, and brings attachment to that information, which I I really really like, and I think I'm going to try and implement it in some of the ways that I communicate with other people moving forwards. Uh, now this this storytelling I think was done very well with um, Andrew Huberman. Andrew Huberman is is a scientist. I've I've mentioned him a couple of times on on this podcast, and he was talking to Impact Theory. Well, talking to Impact Theory, he was talking to Tom from Impact Theory. It was uh, on the Impact Theory show, which is why it's uh, uh, tagged as Impact Theory in my notes. Uh, but they spoke about change your brain by using these hacks to increase your dopamine. Now. It, it would have been very easy for Andrew to just go full head-on science and explain dopamine. But instead, he created a narrative. He explained this, this dopamine narrative in the world of Tom. So he used Tom as the case study. He used Tom as the center of the narrative and explained dopamine and how dopamine is the currency of motivation, pain, and pleasure. And he's done a whole podcast on it, which I actually explained. I think it was one of the first podcasts I did. Uh, so maybe if you head back, but I know I have a note on it. So when I uh, when I publish my notes, eventually you'll be able to see those. <laughs> uh, you'll be able to see what I took from the podcast. Again, another benefit of having a digital garden. You can just have a look at what I found. Um, but he... he created this narrative around Tom, so he used the person he was talking to as the narrative, as the storyline, to explain this concept topic of dopamine. Now, dopamine itself isn't complex, but the relationships dopamine has with all the different uh, bodily systems is complex, because pain and pleasure, there is a balance to be had. What is pain? What is pleasure? How do you actually feel pain? And then how does dopamine affect that one, the feeling of pain, the feeling before pain, the feeling after pain. Yes, you can feel pain before it happens. And yes, you can feel pain after the pain, the actual mechanical triggers of pain has gone. Uh, and then pleasure is exactly the same. You can feel pleasure before anything actually has happened. It's you're, you're predicting pleasure into the future. Again, thinking about the idea that we actually live in the past, present and future because we predict things and we feel things before they happen. But then we also feel things after they've happened. So we actually live in the past and the future and the present all at the same time. I know, a bit of a mind bend. Uh, but yeah, so thinking about dopamine and its its impact on all of those things was very, very complex. And it is very complex, especially when you get to biochemistry. But he explained it through a story, explained it through a narrative, and used Tom as the case study, which I thought was very effective. And it allowed Tom to understand all of the, the complex uh, interactions dopamine has with pain, pleasure, different periods of time that your mind is putting yourself through. And it was just a great conversation. I would certainly have a look at it. But dopamine as the currency of motivation, essentially, if you're high on dopamine, it was a really good experience. If you're low on dopamine, it wasn't. And you will remember those. You will remember those peaks and troughs of dopamine. When you look back in memories, most of those memories were either peaks or troughs of dopamine. And that that's how our brain works. We remember things that are important to us. And that is normally uh, measured through dopamine how high or low the dopamine levels are which is why when you fail and you and you look silly or anything like that dopamine is driven because you failed the hippocampus suddenly is activated and which is why failure is so good for learning because you have this this peak or trough of dopamine and that obviously triggers your brain to go okay i need to remember this thing hippocampus then activates because it's next to the pain triggers and emotional control etc etc i'm not going to go into the science about it the neuroscience for it but all of those things are triggered which means okay this is now a a 
point in time which your brain is going to remember, which is why those memories that you do remember are either peaks and troughs of dopamine or where you trigger the hippocampus that has therefore triggered dopamine like up and up and down. But that that's why you remember those things, which is why we remember pain and loss and mistakes over things uh, that are just mundane. Uh, now, moving moving a little bit sideways, but still related to Tom. Tom was talking about goals, um, and he was talking about. So this is still in the in the same in the same uh, conversation. They they started talking a little bit about goals and and moving forwards and how you can use this dopamine uh, to to move forwards. And this idea of goals was explored further during the week in the sports psych show um, through through the through the the lens of sport performance uh and it was from Nolbrick and Scott Douglas they were talking about goals from from a sports performance perspective and they they actually said something that i was i i, I did i couldn't get my head around to start with but i've i've read it a couple of times since and they said we are wired to strive for long term goals that's what we are wired to do yet when when you think about a lot of people, we are very um, short term orientated. I want to get this done. Procrastination is a, is a, a classic example. Parkinson's law: just get it done as soon as you can. Um, but they said that, and I was like, no, I don't think we are. And then when I started thinking about it, actually, yes, we are. And what Tom was talking about with the the, the dopamine and trying to lead that on, how can I use this to better myself moving forwards? Well, dopamine using peaks and troughs to then gauge where you are in measurement to moving forwards with the long term goal. And that made me re re sort of reassess this idea of we're wired to strive for long term goals because that's what we are. At the end of the day, we are looking way 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 into the future i'd like this i'd like that i would love to be able to do this so we're always looking into the future but we don't necessarily put them or term them as goals in our own mindset uh, I've, I've got a note on this in my space that meanings of uh, meanings are in people not in words and i think this again is very true here because a meaning of a goal to someone typically is smart goals now in this in this podcast episode, Smart Goals was talking about a lot t- types of goals, outcome goals, process goals, performance goals, smart goals. Uh, and we think of goals as smart goals, uh, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. But a goal is just something we're striving towards in a lot of people's minds. And when I think of goals, it is something that we're looking to strive towards, which could be an aspiration. Now the question becomes, okay, what's the difference between a goal and aspiration? I'll, I'll leave you to I'll leave you to to find the meaning between the two of those, but that's one of those questions that came up, which made me think. Okay, if we all have aspirations, we all have dreams, and I can't really find a tangible difference between aspirations, dreams, and goals, then we are all striving for long-term goals because that's what an aspiration and a dream is. It's just a long-term goal. The difference, I think, from what I've seen currently in research, a goal is something that is measurable or outcome or something, but. But then you need to add a bit of context to the word goal, because a context goal has more more of an outcome to it. So it, it becomes an outcome goal rather than a process goal. But then a process goal is looking more aspirational because it's it's about the process and just moving forward to each and every iteration. Uh, so the the outcome goals and the performance goals are much more short term, but the aspirational goals and the dream goals are much more long term, which 
Does that mean aspiration is a goal? It's just a type of goal, in which case, yeah, we are all wired for long-term goals because we all dream and we all aspire to different things, but we don't all have short-term goals. We don't always have outcome and performance goals, and they are the goals most of us think about. When we, when you think goals, you think, okay, I need to do this by this time. That's, that's where we immediately think of goals, and aspirations aren't as goals, but maybe aspirations are just types of goals. So we are all goal-driven, we're just not all outcome or performance goal driven and that is a that it is a, a distinction that I've tried to make in my mind about the meaning of goals to me but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts maybe at me on Twitter and and hear your thoughts about what goals mean to you uh, or just ask a question just give some feedback uh, about your thoughts on goals because it's it's one of those things that Everyone does it in some way it's just everyone's got their own little their own little method process of of attacking what goal setting is to them, and goal setting is obviously very important, especially in human performance, when you want to try and improve, because you need to know you're getting better. Uh, Now, sleep has been a massive area of research, like I said before, and when we're getting better, sleep is one of those elements that we need to improve on, and something I found out about with sleep, which I didn't think would be related at all, is metabolic syndrome. I was like, metabolic syndrome? What? Um... And metabolic syndrome, because I was looking at the relationship between sleep and mortality. Sleep and mortality and moving forwards, and obviously, long-term goal, we need to stay alive. (laughs) That's what we want to do. And mortality was obviously important, and apparently sleep debt can kill you. Well, I don't want to say too much, but it can't kill you. It can contribute to other factors that affect uh, your mortality rates. So going all the way down that line, because sleep debt essentially increases the likelihood of you eating more foods because of the impacts of hunger hormones, ghrelin and leptin. So you're eating more because of sleep debt. So the sleep debt isn't killing you. It's the effect it's having on your hormones, potentially increasing your eating habits and decreasing your activity habits, which therefore can lead to symptoms of obesity, which can lead to metabolic syndrome that's where i sort of that route i got through now there's loads of other routes to get there as well again you'll have to either wait for me to public my publish my notes or do some research on the sleep mortality relationship uh, but metabolic syndrome is something i came across and metabolic syndrome uh there there was a, a study called metabolic syndrome pan, uh, pandemic and i have the pdf pdf up on my screen now and I've grabbed some notes from it, but what this syndrome basically is uh, is a is it's a combination of obesity, high blood pressure, and wait, let me have let me bring up the actual note. There we go. So it is a combination of diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, and obesity, with the criteria for metabolic syndrome being debated about. But prevalence of metabolic syndrome varies. That that's the the the, the start of my note. And basically, the metabolic syndrome in Europe, Asia, Latin America. Is is very very high. Uh, basically, we eat too much and we don't move around enough, which I think most of us know. And it's become a, a so-called worldwide epidemic because it affects twenty to thirty percent of adults. Now, it's affected by loads of other things as well, and there's loads I could say on this. But what I want to link this to is okay, metabolic syndrome is something that we can all affect, we can all change, and we can all do something about, and it is an aspiration slash long-term goal for all of us, stay alive, don't die, um, and it's and it's impacted by sleep, which we all know we need to get, so it, it just, this, finding out about this thing, the syndrome, um, made me think, okay, we all know what we need to do to avoid it, we all know the risks of it, 
We all know how we can change it. And most of us know what we need to do. Like, when you ask someone, are you getting enough sleep? They know roughly whether they are or aren't getting enough sleep. And then when you ask someone, are you eating too much? Yeah, or no, or... They, they roughly know whether they're eating too much for their health. Um, and they... Most most people that are overweight or obese know that they are at higher risk of certain things. They just choose to do it, which is entirely up to them. It's their choice. Wouldn't be my personal choice, but that's up to them. So everyone knows these risks... And everyone knows the risk of metabolic syndrome and how it impacts all the other things um, that relate to health. So cardiovascular issues, uh, diabetes, different blood uh, blood sugar levels, blood pressure levels, respiratory issues, all those sort of things re- that relate to metabolic syndrome. We, we know it all. And it's just, it, it blows my mind sometimes that we know what causes an issue. We know what the issue is. We know the risks of the issue. And we know it's going to increase the likelihood of death or mortality in some way or another. And our goal, our lifelong goal normally, is to live, survive, thrive. Our aspirations are there. So we have the goals. We have the knowledge, we have a story, we have a narrative, we have the education, we have the communication, because there's always conversation going on around this, and we have the resources, we have the executable books to get through it. That's gone through all the points before at the beginning of this podcast, and it leads to metabolic syndrome as a problem. And you know what we do about it? Nothing. <laughs> most of us do nothing about it. I say most of us. Most of the people that struggle with metabolic syndrome do nothing about it. Um. And it's just one of those things that makes me question, okay, human performance is something that we all strive for. All of us strive for an element of human performance in some way, whether that is trying to live, trying to survive, or looking for the the peak performance in a specific domain. Yet, so many people that, are, that want to survive, they want to live long, don't help themselves. And that's something I, I struggle with constantly. I, I just don't fully grasp why they don't help themselves. And this is going to relate to, bear with me, because this could be a little bit of an out there point, but this is going to relate to something that I saw from um, Chris Beardsley, who is a strength and conditioning specialist, basically. He researches strength and conditioning, which for those that are unfamiliar, is kind of like personal training, but is very, very specific on the strength elements and conditioning elements of human performance high human performance typically and he was talking about velocity specificity okay i'm going to read out this tweet because uh, it's it's an infographic there was loads of research put into this but i'm going to read this out just as a point uh, so he said heavy strength training causes greater increases in strength at low speeds than fast speeds Fast movement training causes greater increases in strength at fast speeds than at low speeds. This velocity specificity occurs by several mechanisms, including a decrease in antagonistic co-activation. Now, there are loads of words in there, and I don't blame you if you got <laughs> if you got lost. But basically, what he's saying is strength training increases strength at slow speeds. Not fast speeds. So if you do like really slow, or really slow, it doesn't have to be slow. If you do squats and deadlifts and powerlifting movements, you're going to get strong, but you're not going to get powerful. You're not going to get good at fast speeds. But then vice versa. If fast movement training causes increases in strength in fast speeds, it's not in low speeds. So when you sprint, you get good at sprinting, not at lifting something. If you lift, you'll get good at lifting, not at sprinting, because one's strength uh, strength one's strength in slow speed one's strength in fast speed now you could relate that to power because power is strength over time and velocity not interesting the point of this is when you train something your body adapts to that thing so if you train strength 
in a slow movement or a stronger movement, you'll get good at that one thing, but not good at that thing at a different velocity. So when when looking at all of these elements of improvement, sleep, you can get better sleep and have more hours sleep, but more hours sleep doesn't necessarily mean it's going to relate to everything else because the quality of sleep may have decreased. And this is where looking at all of the different elements of something play a massive role. You could increase your sleep quality. You could increase your sleep quantity and you could increase uh, all the different aspects of sleep, but you could be sleeping at poor times or you, you could have that one element that is off and suddenly, okay, it impacts everything else. Um, but, and and I say this because in a strength and conditioning world, like what what I just gave the the slow and fast example, there's just two metrics there: strength increase in slow movement, slow movement fast, or slow movement better, faster movement not so good. But in the world of almost every other element of human performance, it's not as is as binary as slow and fast it's okay if one factor is impacted all of the other factors are also impacted and this is where this is where keeping keeping tabs on all the different elements of health and performance is difficult and something that i found out today which isn't um well, today this week which isn't uh, on the on the points of recap but cleaning your teeth i didn't realize that if you if you rinse out your mouth after cleaning your teeth it's actually bad for your teeth you shouldn't rinse your mouth out with water after cleaning your teeth i didn't know that I'm almost 25, and I didn't know that. I've been doing it for 25 years. Um, but it's those small things that you don't know, you don't realize, that affect you. And it's it's finding out those things that's interesting to me to help human performance. And that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm currently doing on the Sharing the Podcast, and what I will be doing in the videos moving forwards. And I want to close out this, this recap, this podcast this week, saying that I am going to make my notes public. I haven't decided when yet. Um, but when I do, the videos that are going to be going out on my channel, I probably in the next couple of weeks, will be focused on me expanding my executable book and my digital garden. But putting people along, like helping people like go through that journey with me, giving those small nuggets, like I did not realize you shouldn't be drinking, you shouldn't be rinsing your mouth out with water after cleaning your teeth, but those small things, those small questions you don't think of asking, like you don't type into YouTube, does uh, does rinsing your mouth out with water harm, t no, no, you don't go and ask that question, you find out that question, and that's where the misconceptions uh, and, the, and the myths come in from Veritasium, so I'm looking to do that more in future, but always, always eager to hear your feedback, uh, so thanks for listening, and um, hopefully I'll see you on the internet somewhere.